This is Creek with At The Table Podcast. Here at At The Table Podcast, our goal is to break down biblical topics, make scripture easy to understand, and to glorify God and His Word. We pray this content edifies, challenges, and blesses you. So without further ado, sit back and join us at the table. Well, good morning and welcome to another episode of At The Table Podcast. This is me, your host, Trey, as always with my two wonderful and exhorting and what, what, give me another good word. What's a good word? Dude, I don't cool. know. I'm awesome. Like, I like where this is headed. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. John and Creek. Yeah. Can, <laughs> can, I, can I just build you up right now? I'll never Call say no. Call me Barnabas. <laughs> I'm the encourager, baby. Wow. How's wanna, it going, boys? I just want to know where it's been, you know, since February. But Well, you know, they say. It's better late than never, you know. If you're going to build something, you have to break it down to the foundation first. <laughs> wow. Right. Exactly. I don't know how I feel about you you being the one doing that. Listen, sometimes I'm Moses with a ministry of condemnation, and Good sometimes night. I'm a follower of Jesus with a ministry of reconciliation. Bro, don't be disrespecting Moses like that. <laughs> hey, God said that He'd start over. If if you if you did what if you dealt with what Moses had to deal with every day, you'd be you'd be a little upset too. I don't know. Sometimes we just we went through Exodus, then people have you. <laughs> Ready to take a sharp right turn off the bridge. You're Aaron and you're her. I think that that's how we should read scripture. Plug I, ourselves into that character. I think given like the context. Yeah, let's of, do that. I think given the context of the, the episode we're going to do, I'd rather not be the Levite if it's all you. <laughs> I'll, I'll take being her. <laughs> Creek, you can be Levi if you want. You can be Aaron. I'll be her. I'll be Joshua. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Son of none. What was Joshua? Ephraimite or something? I don't know. Ephraim. I think so. How's, how's your guys' uh, week gone? Good? Good. Oh. Pretty good. All right. It, it was a rough week, but it's, you know, we're good. Dude, mine's been good. When the when the weather gets this cold, oh, I want to spend every day outside. For real. With a shotgun or a bow. <laughs> well, I do spend every day outside. Unfortunately, most of the time it's with a hammer and a wrench. Yeah. And, yeah uh, it's not quite what I had in mind. When it, yeah, when it got cold, boy, it, it gets hard on me. It's The weather takes its toll. I don't I don't enjoy it being out there for that reason anyway. But right. I just I guess because of the banter before we hit record, I feel the need now to push the working man thing since you guys pretty much accused me of being Conoco Phillips. You're big oil. Say <laughs> you were Conoco Phillips. No, you're big oil, dude. You're the CDL driver. We were thinking more like East Coast, like Rockefeller or something. Yeah, yeah. Why East Coast? Why, why do I have to be a? Satanist? You're just big oil. All right, the Christian voice of big oil. Yo, Sinclair. Yeah, you know, Sinclair. Sinclair. <laughs> At least you're gonna be a, a pretty green dinosaur. Think of it like that. That's not good. I don't <laughs> like that at all. I'm just joking. Trey, for the record, for our audience, Trey is not a big oil. He is a big guy, but he's not a big oil field guy. So if okay. if you see, he's, if you hear uh, in the topic of this conversation, any rebukes toward big oil, do not include me in that. There might be some. Yeah. But don't include Trey or there me. There might be some. Mm. And if you hear those and, and, and you wince, something in you winces, be a man. Take the hit. Keep rolling. <laughs> so I guess that brings us to the topic of conversation. <laughs> it, uh, what's at the table, if you will. 
Um, a little bit of a uh, a descriptive. Yeah, <laughs> you gonna do a banter again? Yeah, or uh, uh, what's what were you singing? Doofenshmirtz earlier? Yeah, Doofenshmirtz. <laughs> Dr. Future Evil Incorporate? No, not evil. Whoa! <laughs> so, anyway, uh, <laughs> scratch whatever hey, he's on. Dr. Future Incorporated. <laughs> we are, uh... No, he don't want to be called Incorporated either, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's not... You just should just stop. Just Dr. Future. The amazing Dr. Future. Yeah. What's at the table today for all of us to consume? Um, fill up your cups. We're going to we're gonna have some communion and community with each other. Um, we have a, a very special guest, um, someone that we've wanted to get on for quite some time. Uh, and he goes by the name of Dr. Michael Bennett. For any of you old timers, no offense, Dr. Bennett, um, he's uh, had had a history in radio, and uh, he's going to introduce himself and then give us a lot of his uh, qualifications, the stuff he's done, and then um, even move into the topic of our conversation today, with his, which is his book. Let me see if I can get it right: the teachings of Jesus. No. No. Goodness. Two, masters, two masters and two, two gospels. gospels. There you go. And then the subtitle. I started off with sure, the subtitle. Sure. Okay. You did. Well, um, without further ado, uh, Dr. Future, would you please introduce yourself to the audience of At the Table Podcast? Mm. <laughs> oh, somebody talking to me? Yes, sir. No, I'm just, as old guys, we, we sort of nod off after a little while. Sorry about that. Um, thank you so much having me on the show and a seat at the table, even though it is like a child's seat at the kitty table, uh, where you put me, <laughs> it's still nice to be, I've got my chin on top of the table here trying to look over the top, but I, I want to, first of all, again, thank you for the invite, uh, on your very prestigious show. Uh, in fact, that was some of the last things I heard Henry Kissinger say before he died this week, he muttered something about at the table and then he just sort of went off to the netherworld. I don't know if you heard that or not. Good night. No, I didn't, you, but it was definitely subliminal messaging that we paid him to say our, our podcast. <laughs> you, all it being talked about in very high spheres. I heard, I heard your name come up at Bohemian Grove. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> during cremation. Pony. Uh, it came up. So anyway, obviously you're having tremendous success, almost diabolical success. It reminds me of uh, that place Faust, you know, where Bethesdopolis, uh helps a man have great achievements. But I mean that in a, in a nice way about you all. So um, first of all, I need to tell you, since it's the season, happy Kwanzaa to everybody there. Yeah, Kwanzaa. What's that? Uh, what like Jamaican Christmas type deal? Do you not? You not know Kwanzaa is? I think Creek does. Maybe I think like Jamaican Christmas type thing. Or well, it actually, it was some a made up holiday from Africa from like the last few decades. But anyway, that'd be something for you to look up. That that usually causes people to kick a garbage can over if they hear it. So, um, if people need to know a little bit about me. Assuming if they know something about me, they probably already switched off the podcast to other things. But if they don't, um, I am a guy who was raised in a, and this is in my book, so you can get the long story in the book at the beginning. So people know where I'm coming from. Uh, I was raised in sort of a classic evangelical upbringing, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, blue collar. Uh, my dad was a machinist. International Harvester, um, mostly stay-at-home mom, 
Um, basically, every time the doors were open at church, Southern Baptist Church, I was there. I'm thankful for my heritage. I learned how much Jesus loved me. Um, the pastor that we vacationed with out on the lake during the summers, uh, the one who taught me how to jump off the boat dock and learn how to swim, is the same one that led me to jump off the boat dock of life into the arms of Jesus. Mm. And uh, I'm grateful for that um, hard programming, to use the computer term. It's like ROM, read-only memory in my head, uh, the, what has been laid. And that's why discipleship is so important. Um, so church has become sort of my family in life. Um, life has sort of slipped away quickly for me. I, I'm 59 now, although I still, like I've told you before, I still feel like I'm like 14. Uh, I don't know how it got to be this late, but for most of my life, I moved away from, from home um, up to around my time. No one in my family had ever gone to college or did anything other than, you know, your regular local blue collar work at the factory. And so I was the first to move away as a single guy and church became my new family. First in Ohio, I worked for the military. Uh, I was not in the military. I was a civilian scientist. Uh, and I need to tell the listeners that my educational background, uh, as far as, you know, vocation is not in theology. I'm just an enthusiast that cares a lot. My background is in science and engineering. And I functioned as a, more like a scientist uh, for the Air Force Research Labs, developing fire and explosion protection devices for vehicles. And I even got to do some work in NASCAR, which is one of my loves, is uh, stock car racing and NASCAR, and developed some things they use there and on police cars to keep police cars from blowing up. And so I was became an inventor that also did a lot of private inventions. And um, selling those, uh, and I also... Uh, met another, my wife, who was an engineer, um, she went to school in Alabama. <clears throat> so she's a big, big Crimson Tide person. And uh, I, I had been told by somebody, you marry somebody from the South, you're going to end up there sooner or later. And that was certainly our case. And so where we reside in Nashville, which where we moved in 2003, was about as far north as we'll ever live. Uh, and the day that I finished my PhD in engineering at the University of Dayton was the uh, day we moved here. And I was doing a lot of consulting work and, and also helping the companies add my inventions to get them in the marketplace and things. And there was a, a weird opportunity that came up in the newspaper. I think it was like the two weeks we actually got the newspaper <clears throat> before my wife stopped it. And it was an ad for some new radio station starting. If anybody would like to put proposals in, and of course I had really no real background in the radio, and I put in this proposal for a show called Future Quake, mm. and to my shock, I found out they picked it. And this was a very, very seat of the pants radio station. I mean, it's community radio, nonprofit, no money people behind it, uh, and the people that I met down there were all like the exact opposite of me. They're all. Um, hardcore progressive, a very, very diverse audience in their background and their look and even sexual orientation, everything. 
And there was something that said, uh, I need to stick with this. And I needed to be exposed to people that didn't come into my suburb where I lived. In our nice house in our suburb we just built, and everybody looks all the same, and everybody goes down the street to the local Baptist church. And uh, my wife, I thought, would really, really have a hard time. But, you know, she wasn't going to be directly involved. But she went with me down to the Peace and Justice Center, you know, where they kick off meetings. And something spoke to her. And she's from, again, rural Alabama. Uh, and she says, you know, not only do I like this, I might want to do my own show. Which I just fell to the floor at that point. Uh, but we helped get the radio station off the ground including people coming from out of town and everywhere with hours to spare before they lost their SEC license. They flipped the switch on, raised the 75 foot tower manually. Uh, and I had a lot of spiritual epiphanies there about, we were going to a very classic Baptist church at the time that had a lot of resources, a lot of history, legacy, so much that they could do so good. And all they did was fight, um, were very duplicitous against the staff. Anybody who wasn't from their families growing up for generations, not that they attacked us, but they would attack the staff people. And we saw all this ugliness, and my wife and I are trying to be peacemakers at this church and bring everybody together. Meanwhile, we're out here in the rain and the freezing sleet with people from Ecuador and Japan and all these places who came from across the world, across the country to help strangers get this radio station off the ground. And, you know, we're there manually on these wires trying to pull the 75 foot tower up because they couldn't afford a, a tractor to do it with somebody crawling up on the top of a tree helping. And the guy that was directing it was telling people on the line to either pull or to give slack and the other side pull or the other side give slack. And this amazing thing, the tower just starts going up. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to work. Mm. You know, we all come from all different places, different backgrounds, different influences. We all grab a line. And if we can listen to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will direct us. Sometimes we need to pull, pull our influence. And sometimes we need to give slack to others. And if somebody knows what they're doing, they can accomplish something much bigger than any one of us. And so I uh, started to go into that. But these are some of the things that over recent years the Lord has helped me ask my own questions about. And so I was on the air there for about three years. I had people who you all probably know, like Mike Heiser and, and all those kind of folks on the show. And then um, it got to be probably a little too religious for the secular station, but they were wonderful to us. So I sort of wrapped it up after three years, and by a miracle, I was given some free airtime at the very end of the day, uh, but the drive time, on a very popular Christian radio station in Nashville. Uh, and again, I'm, this is not a job. I'm just doing this, doing the research and doing it on the side. Um, on every day. And um, that the station that basically covered multiple states, mostly older, well-established evangelical people, you know, the, the traditional Dobson kind of shows, all syndicated, except for us, locally produced. So we would critique 
not, not that we directly address what was talked on the other stations, but indirectly, the material we covered and the information we shared sort of debunked a lot of what they were hearing on this big money Christian radio. And it developed a huge following, and we had probably about 70,000 followers. And I did that until the radio station was sold and changed format. And um, we soldiered on for about another year online. And then I realized this, this place here where I live in Middle Tennessee was ground zero for the big anti-Sharia mania of 2010, 2012. Uh, there was a Muslim center being built in, in um, Murfreesboro. And all of these demagogues and others came from all over the country, uh, sensing money here and trying to work up everybody like a witch hunt kind of thing and scare them that we were all going to be under Sharia law in a year. And when I started seeing how it was changing the people here, church folk that I was around, you know, because church has been always the main center of our life and again, our family. Um, I realized that I needed to, rather than indirectly comment on my guests, I need to put down what I'm observing and compare it to scripture mm-hmm. and also history, the testimony of history. And that became a book series that I started working on. That was supposed to be a book about what was happening here in the 2010, 2012 era and what it said about where we're at spiritually. <clears throat> and, that, and that grew into what currently is about a 13 volume book series that I'm getting ready to release all lengthy books called the Holy War Chronicles. And it became a critique of the whole history of holy wars in general. From the time of Cain and Abel as the first holy war of two guys striving and led the violence over trying to get God's favor uh, through the whole era of Judaism and then the era of Christianity up to what we have now. And I was trying to just finish it up when there were so many things happened in our society during the rise of Trump, you know, from the time that he came down the elevator, uh, that fateful day and things started changing or at least amping up a lot. And I started a blog, uh, about that time called the two spies report, which was dedicated to, uh, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies. And it was sort of a spiritual, um, minority report. Mm. just because a minority of people of God say something doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And so I would explore when the most of the crowd is sort of marching off in one direction. Let's stop and think about where we march into. And is it the values that Christ laid down for us? And so I did that blog for a while, but I kept getting more pressure from some of my friends in the media and close friends that I needed to do more. And I ended up, trying to document in book form as I got sidetracked my Holy War Chronicles about what the last few years has said about the values and the mental state of my fellow Christians here in America. Mm-hmm. And that began the two masters and two gospels book series, which was written in a fever, uh, in 2018 and 2019, and hadn't gone through, I, I'd written for some anthologies for Tom Horn and, you know, stuff that Derek Gilbert had written in and I'd written some. And then, uh, I released that in 2020 and boy, that was like 
a little bob that went down as far as like between my people who had followed what I did. You know, as long as you talk about Nephilim and you talk about, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff, that doesn't offend anybody. You know, more fantasy or any kind of stuff. You start talking about how we look at our brother today, uh, and that's fighting words. And mm-hmm. so it's been an education for me on the response. Even people who I would call close friends, uh, this is a season of shaking um, of the church. And so my education continues. And so I've got two more volumes to come out that show about the formative, the, the formative years and influences that have led us to where the it's even broader than the evangelicals. I would say the entire religious right. Uh, it includes conservative Catholics, Mormons, um, you know, others that would right. fall within that category. Uh, and if you know history, you certainly understand why these values are a little bit different than if you just went in with a clean slate into the Gospels, for example, and read them. And I'm trying to figure out where did things change? And so I get up to basically the seventies in this first book. Uh, although I talk a lot about what's happened in the last seven or eight years and thinking about what message are we sending to society? Uh, the next two books, which are almost all completely written now, will get into some of the cults that took over evangelicalism in the eighties and nineties that I doubt many people even remember or know about. And, and then it gets really weird by volume three. So, um, like that. anyway, that, that's a lot that I said there, but I will tell you uh, one thing for your audience, <clears throat> Mike, whether you understand all the points that I make or my attitude where I'm coming from, I'll tell you this. My real goal is to elevate and lift up Jesus Christ to advance the kingdom of heaven Amen. and, and to get us ready for the next phase that he has for us and what he is preparing for us. Uh, you know, a phase in which we're going to judge or administer over angels. So he's got a lot of work to do on us. And I see the gospel in the light of being very much liberating, um, freeing us from captivity, just like what you see in the Exodus story. And that's how God rolls. He is in the emancipation deliverance and freedom business. That's right. And if we, if we depart from that as the primary theme of what we do when we interact with others, then we have lost our way because he's tried to tell us in our heads in the Bible that that's really what he's about. And in fact, he said in his kickoff meeting when Jesus read from the book of Isaiah, talked about setting the captives free and preaching the good news to the poor. And then he closed it and said, this has been fulfilled to your hearing. Man. So that's where I roll, whether I do it right or wrong or screw up. Poor Jesus is stuck with, with you know, guys like me uh, to try to pull this stuff off. So please forgive me where, where I've misstepped my own way, but that's my motive. That's what my goal with people are. People wonder, what team are you playing on, you know? Where are you coming from? Well, that's the team I'm trying to 
I'm trying to stick with. <laughs> Amen. Right on. If you could, so the the book's called Two Masters and Two Gospels, and the little subheading of the titles says the teachings of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. So <clears throat> could you kind of explain, like, maybe just give us give us your spiel on why is talk radio and cable news the leaven of the Pharisees? Sure. Sure. Um, and again, feel free to interrupt me when I get a little long-winded here. Um, the stimulus for taking a detour for my other stuff to write this book that became a a three-volume series, is um, the changes that I had witnessed, not only just nationally, because I follow the news and church news, but in my local congregation. Since, say, 2015 or so, it wasn't like these seeds weren't already there, but it became amplified. And if I could use a Freudian term, uh-oh. <laughs> what the last eight years have been to my observation is that there were some dark elements of our community that, you know, the people we love um, that were sort of like the id. It was the sublimated part we didn't like to talk about. You know, it, whether it's like racism or xenophobia or some other stuff we wouldn't be too too proud to brag about. The kind of stuff that when the guys would go out on the back porch and take a smoke break from church, the kind of jokes they'd be snickering and telling real low and they didn't want the preacher to hear. Mm. That kind of mindset in id has now become what I call the superego. It's the normative value system that has gone public, and everybody accepts it as normative of our culture. You know, the things like, you know, beat that guy up in the in the rally, beat him up, you know, what was the quote, beat the hell out of him, and I'll pay his legal bills. People actually enjoy that kind of stuff, and they're not embarrassed. To, they don't have to whisper that they like that kind of stuff. Or making fun of guys that have cerebral palsy, for example. Yeah, this this is the stuff that now just, people have just started putting their cards on the table, and it has been devastating because I've seen this in people that I had as personal Christian mentors, family members, people I have worshipped beside for decades, uh, people I'm just very intimate in relationships with, have suddenly sort of you know pulled the mask off. And so the, the trigger in my book I mentioned was when I was in the voting line and I saw all these seniors who are suddenly showing up in the voting that I hadn't been voting for forever. And this grimness that they had, this intensity and grimness of what their mission was there. And I started looking into why have people sort of taken this value that I can't really relate to with just reading the words of Jesus in the New Testament. And, and I came to the conclusion that when I've talked with them, family members, people at church or neighbors about social issues and things that matter to us, I find they don't, these are all church folk, by the way, they don't quote scripture 
to give an explanation of why they feel that way about immigrants or the poor or anybody else who's a little different. What I find is I know just enough of talk radio and cable news that I hear verbatim talking points that come from there. Oof, right. That's for their values, okay? Now, these are people who are strangers that are telling them these things. They don't know who they are, who their agenda is. Um, and I thought, why is everybody using this to, as Christians what their reality is based on these things that they're just reciting? And I, I suddenly realized it's like obvious. This has become the new church for our fellow church folk. It's talk radio and cable news. And the reason why is sheer saturation. You know, if people are blessed enough to go to a decent church and to hear, you know, a good sermon about the kingdom of heaven for 20 minutes or what Christ values are and how challenging they are, uh, if they are lucky enough to hear that, it's overwhelmed by their 30, 45-minute commute in the car where they're a captive audience with somebody on talk radio who they don't know who they are, but it's making them feel prideful about themselves and about their tribe and, you know, a shared threat from someone on the outside of their tribe. So they hear that as a captive audience in the car. They turn it on in the radio, subliminally in the back, during the day while they're doing their thing, they get back in the car and listen to it another 30, 45 minutes on their way home. Then oftentimes they'll turn on cable news with the same kind of people talking while they're fixing and eating your meal, even to the point of listening to it on the Sunday morning shows before they go to church. So it's really no contest. And a pastor who wants to, who's not bought into that and actually wants to stand on the values Christ gave us from our society doesn't have a chance because people are tending so frequently the church of talk radio and cable news every time the doors are open. And <clears throat> further, I tried to figure out what, well, if I was going to throw a blanket over, you know, when you try to stereotype something, there's always going to be exceptions. I understand that, but it's instructive to figure out, is there a theme that's a commonplace? And what I found is the positions that I knew people derived from talk radio and cable news were consistently the values of what we, you could call the wealth class towards society. Uh, the wealth classes, and it's not just now, it's always been a view that the people who are simple, humble people or the poor are a burden. Uh, workers are to be exploited. Um, that um, social safety nets uh, are a real drag on windfall profits, uh, that um, pensions like, with like Social Security or workers' pensions are uh, something that impacts the bottom line and they fight. Um, people, like people who come from outside our country who come in, they like to exploit their workforce at below-the-table wages, but otherwise they see them as a blight. Uh, and, yeah, I could go on and on with this. But this is the way the wealth class views the rest of the world around them. And whoever would impede the transfer of wealth to their coffers, just like the Gilded Age and, you know, even before 
our nation. And so I thought, is there some kind of spiritual or biblical antecedent to this kind of wealth class religion mm. that you God all the time and appeals to scripture, but yet still withholds those, those values. And the group that I could most connected to were the Pharisees. Mm. The Pharisees were some of the most pious, ostensibly God fearing, um, God talking about people that you would ever see. You know, their, their first blush when you came across this, you, you marvel at their piety and their devotion. But as you peel back the onion, and I suggest everyone go pick up your, your Gospels and carefully write down what their actions and statements say about their values. And I do that in the chapter of my book. I try to go right down, like, here's, here's what we know about their values based on what they said to Jesus or to the people around them or whatever. And they're consistently wealth-class values. And the scripture makes it clear. I think it's in Luke 16, 13. And it talks about how much they hated Jesus. And it said, because the Pharisees were lovers of money. Mm. And really emphasized that as what was operating them and what they found so abhorrent about Jesus. Uh, it, it is a value system that insists on publicly acting very pious that God's anointing is on them and that they are the ones to tell everyone how you should practice your faith and your values. But behind the scenes, they're rife with corruption. They're always trying to ingratiate themselves into the secular powers that be, get political power, um, use underhanded means to silence anyone who would expose their hypocrisy. Uh, and again, I, I think I came up with 31 listing of things directly from their actions. Wow. And it really is amazing how much it sounds just like our TV and Christian media people on the value systems that they have. Because when you love money, you're going to have to do something to defend your elitism. Yeah. Everyone else. You know, and I, if, if I could real quick, just to, just to interject for our audience, um, I think that, the first thing that I want to say is listening to everything that you said. I first heard um, heard you speak on. I, I believe it was um, it wasn't Ravel, but it was Basil's work with with Gons. I think on a Canary Cry uh, radio. And the first time I heard your point of view coming from a like like you, you know, the very the very same evangelical, you know, conservative background, but also being an honest follower of Jesus, I think that. For everyone, because that's primarily our audience too. The first thing that you should do when you hear something like this, search your heart. You know, yeah. open up your heart to say, like, even though, even if I don't agree with everything, is there something that God is trying to speak to me? And I know that that He He did use you to speak into my heart and to to reexamine some things and some points of view that I had and. And what you're talking about with like the Pharisees, you know, in this leaven and that's all over the church today. I think that it's funny how somehow we are so critical and we are so pitted against the very audience that Jesus came to save. Man. Like, you know, the ones that 
And even when he dealt with the, the, the Pharisees, the people that he was harsh to were, were the church people of the day. And, what, and what, did, what did he tell them? He said, you know, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Mm. And I don't know how we got to this place in society where the mission is no longer about seeking and saving what's lost. It's more right. about let's build pretty buildings, let's have picnics and luncheons, let's have this this yeah. cultural you know phenomenon, let's have this this society societal you know thing where we can all come together, we can enjoy prosperity and wealth instead of this 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 heart of Christ, which was let's let's get out of this and let's go and and let's bring let's open the door like our podcast is let's let's build a table and let's let's seat people there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I was raised as a classical Southern Baptist where the Great Commission was a major part of our life. And that's why we had altar calls at the end of the service and saying, just as I am, a bunch of verses or have my own way and see people come forward. Um, during the week, we would go, and this, this really goes back to how society's changed, but we would have visitation night where you'd go and get a visitation card. Somebody visited the church or a relative and you go out with another brother in the middle of the night and you just show up unannounced to somebody's house. You'll find out what their spiritual needs were. And if you had a chance, maybe even lead them along to what might make a decision for Christ. Well, these days you'd get shot if you did that, you know, showing up unannounced. But, but the mentality was we go out to them and it's a priority. And if that is your priority, you care about what those white fields, what they think about you. Yeah. You care about because that has an impact on whether you're effective as a fisherman to be a fisher of men or to rescue the perishing on how they perceive you and your motives. If they are suspicious mm. of you, things that disturb them about how you perceive them, you're going to get nowhere and you're going to be useless. You're going to be like salt that's lost its savor. And so when you look at the examples Christ gave in the parables, you remember with the, the wedding feast where uh, he said, go out and invite them to come to the wedding feast for my son. And the people they invited, well, they had business to attend to. They had some business feelings and property deals to do and other things. So they had excuses not to. And the king says, you go out in the highways and the byways and you go bring the lame, the halt, and the blind and bring them to my table. And, and they came. Okay. These same lame, halt, and blind in our society, I'm not talking about physical ailments. I'm talking about sure. those impaired in some way based upon our values. The disenfranchised, okay? yeah. Yeah, and people who, who, again, don't measure up compared to the way we think things people ought to be. Those are the people who we say are our enemies. Mm. Paul said, I'm going to be a barbarian to the barbarian. I'm going to be a Greek to the Greek, a Jew to the Jew, so that I might rescue some of them. What yeah. we say, Jesus says the fields are white unto harvest. What we say is there's a bunch of enemies out there in that field. They're hiding haystacks. I see them out there. I better go build me a bunker right here for my. Now, you know, you got doomsday cult people. I, 
Bible prophecy fan, like a lot of people. But people transition in these doomsday cults. Well, they're done with the Great Commission. Okay, mm. they're going to protect their own. And it doesn't even have to be them building a compound out in the desert. It might be building a little compound at their local school board. Man. But they're going to take over and they're going to build this because we're going to stop any kind of influence that doesn't need our standard, which the Pharisees were very good at. Well, that's, yeah, yeah I, if I can jump in, I think that's one thing about your work that I've, I've really loved is, you know, like if someone reads the book, you know, it, I, I feel you'll, a lot of the readers or audience will be inclined to align themselves with their first offense. Right. Whenever, you know, their their heels first, they're, they're rocked back on their heels from that first blow to what well, what they probably don't realize subconsciously is an idol of theirs. This this yeah. ideology that has, like you said, it's become a second master. It's become a second gospel. Um, what what you've done is, I think that some people could be tempted to think that you would pull on one political side more than you would the other. But from what I gather from your work, what it seems to me, of course, you know, like we talked before the show, we'll go harder on our own tradition than we will the other guys because we, we empathize with them more. We understand them more. That's, that's us. That's our people. But on the other side of that spectrum, too, you know, really what it seems to me is that, you know, you're, you're attacking an ideology that Satan has tried to, to marry to Christianity, and it, it's like you said, you know, when you were first talking, the first thing that, that popped into my head was, was the Good Samaritan. When they asked Jesus, they say, who is my neighbor? And then he tells them about a Good Samaritan, which is an oxymoron to them, right? Because there's no such thing as a Good Samaritan, right? All Samaritans are bad. You know, they're <laughs> like what you right. know, Paul says about the Cretans, right? They're gluttons, they're liars, you know, they're da-da-da-da-da. All of these people suck. There, you kind of have like this inclination that if they're of a certain culture, if they have ideals, whether their ideals are correct or not, doesn't matter how you feel about them. You know, like you said, if you for if you feel more inclined to buy ammunition and a new AR-15 when you see disaster come upon the world than you do to go preach the gospel, that's a sign of what master has your attention more. Who's teaching you more? The only right. time that one of Jesus' disciples were instructed to grab a weapon, he was rebuked when he used it. You right. know, there, our weapon, uh, that was the other scripture that popped into my head, and I guess that just overarches your point is, um, you know, Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And it's like, you know, getting the, the evangelical world to realize, and this is what I feel like you're, you're trying to do. And I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you're fighting a carnal fight with carnal weapons and claiming to be a spiritual man. These things can't be that's bitter water and fresh water from the same spring. Where's your allegiance at? You know, right. that, that was at I least am. my takeaway. Preach it brother. Uh, the, what happens is, and, and again, I, my book's like 480 pages long. And being a scientist by my background, I'm, I'm not one of these 
Cavs and the, the Christian media thing that write the more popular books that just basically sound off with what my views are and the way I think things ought to be, like some guy at the end of a bar somewhere, and expect that that's enough to sway people. Mm-hmm. What I do in the book, in the heart of the book, the heart of it, the middle of it, takes up the biggest hunk of it, is a history that I lay out of how we got here. Yeah. Particularly in America. And it's, to me, the most important part of the book because it's smoking gun evidence that there were some people with tremendous wealth that came together with this magnificent plan to write another gospel and to use mass media, which was a new thing, to totally change the hearts and minds of Christians from what they were at the time to what we now know today is something we don't know any different. It was what we were raised in. It was the values that we had. It was not what our Christian brothers in the 30s and earlier had. And I lay out smoking gun evidence that a wealth class took over the gospel in America and a good part of the West. And I'll just mention another thing about the money angle. Although, again, corruption, seeking political power, those are all Pharisee things. You know, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, and, and I will say, if you're a student of history, religious history, you're, you're led to the point that the good old days for the church was the early church when they were this tiny minority and negligible impact on the, on the culture. Uh, they didn't have any money. They met underground. Most of them were slaves. They were in a very pluralistic culture where they, they weren't taking Rome back. Okay. They weren't taking Rome back to start dictating the decisions everybody do. And I can tell you right now, the people who say that now in the church, would terrify me and how I would want to conduct my faith, much less someone who wasn't a Christian. But the people who are into this dominionism thing a lot, they don't even know how to take care of animals. Why would we want to give domain over people? But when you look at Jesus' history, you know, Jesus tried to tell us clearly. And like I'm quoted in the gospel when it says that, that the Pharisees were lovers of money, and from that, their whole value system percolated. And we're a people in America who are lovers of money. That's, it's capitalism sanctifies that as a, a virtue. Uh, greed is a virtue. But when Jesus started his ministry, as I, as I can sort it out in the Gospels, he actually overturned the money changers' uh, uh, tables, the den of thieves, twice. Yeah. Now, I never really had grasped that growing up and studying the Bible all the time until I finally just focused. said, wait a minute. He turned it over once at the very beginning of his ministry as if he sort of shot the uh, cannonball over the bow of the ship, like, here's what I'm coming for, which put him at the animosity of the Pharisees immediately. But he also did it during the Passion Week when he showed up in the town because because he set his face like a flint coming to Jerusalem, and he knew that's where all the prophets die. And it was time to die. And so the way he knew to make sure that they killed him was to hit him in the pocketbook. And he turned them over again during the Passion Week. And another thing I didn't know until I did research for this book, and, and he, the Jews themselves, 
understand this clearly. And you can read in the Jewish Encyclopedia. Those den of thieves were known as the stalls of Annas. Now, Annas was the boss hog of the of the priestly class. He was the guy who he was the decision maker behind the high priest, and he would pick his sons in laws to be the acting high priest at the time. And Caiaphas was the one at the time of Jesus. But he was the one who made all the decisions. That's why Jesus got drugged not only before Caiaphas, but also Annas. Because Annas and his family were the ones that were running and operating that money racket in the temple. Mm. It was good. And that's why even the regular Jews hated them. And even today, Judaism, even rabbinic Judaism, has little good to say about those guys because they concede that they were operating that within the temple itself. So, you know, the wealthy tale of Angelus was not invented on our term. They're just hearkening back to Annas, you know, or, or maybe, uh, you can even go back to Balaam, the prophet and and that, but the, the key thing, if there's, and, and by the way, people are offended by anything. Again, I've been raised conservative Christian in my doctrinal beliefs and even in my politics and didn't really start asking questions until far later than I should have. Um, and I'm not looking for like, well, I need to find some other political group to be part of. If you think that's what this is all about, then you're totally missing the point. Right. What we need to decide is, what are our values that are scripturally justified by the kingdom of heaven teaching that Jesus taught? Politics are, you know, those are things of this world. They're going to mm. pass away. America is going to pass away. Mm. All of the other nations are going to pass away. Right. Okay. Going to be found in that they, they're not, they were never the instrument that God had planned for his long-term plan. They are an instrument that he ordains to monitor the marketplace, the dishonest weights and measures, as I quote copious scriptures in the book about, they are to make sure that the poor get justice in the courts. And you know, it, it even goes so far up. I, I think you, you've probably talked about some of Mike Heiser's teaching on the show, and when I'd be right on that, about yeah. the divine council and stuff like that. He's Mike Heiser is a really good friend. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's been a good friend of mine probably since I met him at Age of the Dates conference 2005. And he always took me very seriously, which surprised me. Uh, but we tried to have really good – and those shows are all archived at futurequake.com. If you want to hear vintage Mike Kaiser, there are a bunch of them up there. Um, but uh, I've seen him talk a lot about the Divine Council and the, the X-70 – angels or, you know, benign Elohim that were given over the nations after the fall of the tower. But there's a passage in, I think it's Psalm 81. 82. The divine council meets. And it talks about how they're going to be judged. But one of the things that I've, and I've mentioned this to him uh, when he was with us, um, that nobody talks about is that there is an indirect political implication in that passage. That's right. Nobody reads the tail end of that chapter. It's a short chapter about what Jesus, what God was judging them over. Mm. If, if they're administrating over the nations of the earth, it says what he judged them for. It wasn't for idolatry. It wasn't for 
um, all these other kind of things that we would normally consider satanic, uh, you know, uh, receiving worship or anything. What he judged them over is says that the poor people couldn't find justice in the nations that they were administering, couldn't find justice in the courts Man. or the market. And that's why he's judging them. Now, how many Christian leaders do you hear preach on their sermons that that maybe should be a priority of making our nation look like that if we're going to fight the principalities and powers? We need to address those things that God said in Scripture is that he's ultimately going to hold them accountable to. Yeah, oh, you know, uh, Dr. Bennett, I, we were just recording in our Snake Crusher series just recently, and we were in uh, Jeremiah and Daniel and moving into like the, the later half of the prophets when they're, they're in exile in Babylon. And I can't remember which king it is. John could probably correct me, but um, after he receives his dream and, and knows. The second. Yeah, yeah, the second. And he knows that, that the damnation is coming on his kingdom. Daniel's advice to him is, hey, if you will just remember the poor, if you'll show justice and you'll, and you'll not oppress the widow and the orphan, perhaps God will, he will, you know, yeah. prolong, you know, the, the time before your judgment. Perhaps he'll hold off. Perhaps he'll hold back. And that's one thing that kind of struck out to me is, like, if you feel like that you're living in Babylon, whether it is or not, you know, if you feel like you're living in that kind of place, like, even there, even in exile in Babylon, God's, his concern was, what are you doing to those people on the bottom? Yeah. You know, I it, it reminds me, uh, a dear friend of ours that, comes to church with us we call uncle marlon came on this show and um what we actually worked together too and at at work he was telling me about a missions trip that he took to haiti and he said you know as you're flying into haiti's airspace your chest gets tight because spiritually you you can just sense the atmosphere there is is horrible and i remember you know when when you were talking it reminded me you know you guys talking about the poor and and the afflicted and, you know, the Annas and the, the Pharisees and the way they did things. And he told us that while while they were there, <clears throat> there was a, a woman that headed up an orphanage that, you know, uh, long story short, had introduced them to, you know, this witch doctor that they were going to preach to. And, you know, they started talking to this witch doctor through her as a translator about Jesus. And this uh, witch doctor... Um, told them, oh, yeah, yeah, we know about Jesus. Yeah, he's great. Um, but we can't we can't get to him like you you white people do. We have to go through these demons to get to him. Yeah. And, you know, it just made me think, like, the what, what people should wonder is the origin point. Where, where do all of these things have a touch point, a place that's common? The, the, the pattern of thinking and its origin is demonic. Like, and if you look in Haiti, you know that you'll also find not just abhorrent things like that, connects to racism and some of the things that you talk about in your book, but you'll also find people that are horribly oppressed, desperately poor, and have no justice at all. And it's Psalms 82, right? And and I, I think, you know, we were talking about this exile stuff too, and Tim Mackey did just a beautiful little video, and I'll, I'll pitch it over to Creek, but um, called The Exile's Way. And and it, it was basically like <laughs> kind of hearkening back to Abraham, right, who looks to 
to see Jesus's day and rejoice. And if you read about him in Hebrews, you know, it Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew that he would never own the promised land, that he would never see it fulfilled in his lifetime. But he looked to a different city whose builder and maker is God. He had a different set of principles. He had a different set of values. And I, and I think, you know, the point of your book is, hey, are your, are your value systems when it comes to the treatment of your fellow man, when it comes to the way that you talk about justice, the way that you look at the orphan, the afflicted, the widow, the poor among you, the disenfranchised, does your value system from them come from Jesus or is that leaven from a different place? And I know Creek had something he want to say, so Creek, go ahead. Well, <clears throat> yeah, so this actually goes right in with what John was talking about, but I kind of wanted you to elaborate a little bit because in the book you talk about maybe the average evangelicals' views on the poor and helping the poor financially and views on the poor and how they might be seen as an inconvenience. So maybe that could just go along with what John was saying, but maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, um, sometimes I get keyboard locked up because there's so much I can say because mostly since I'm talking to what I consider people like me, evangelicals raised in church in the book, it is wall to wall scripture that I promote, you know, that I recite in the book. I mean, if you look through my book, you can confirm this. I don't just use one or two verses. I use Old and New Testament, long series of verses that are consistent with what I'm talking about. You just don't hear them read a lot in church. Mm. Jesus quotes them, but you just don't hear them talked about a lot, or they skipped over. I was actually you know? shocked about how much scripture you actually had. Like, I was looking for my own scriptures awesome. to quote, yeah. and it's crazy how much. So that is a true statement, yes. Well, see, I feel an onus to almost have to checkmate the reader uh, <laughs> as, a, as a duty I have. And it's a tremendous amount of work. And that's everything I do, all my other writing, everything else, because I'm writing for a skeptical reader. Because what will happen with them is that if they even bother to listen and, and think about it a little bit, they're going to have a little bit of a crisis mm. Mm. from it because it deviates from what they're hearing everywhere else, you know, from the famous people, the famous people with the big money, church people, it's going to deviate. And so what happens is you go through a grief cycle and this grief, it's like all of it. You go through denial, anger, compromise. Well, maybe a little bit of it's true. You know, it takes a long way to get like, and I went through this myself. You get to the acceptance into things. So I understand where they're at. I have paced a hole in the floor here, working on my life. What's wrong with me? But you know, there's an overarching term people need not to forget in scripture. It's a Hebrew word. It's called anawim. And anawim's mentioned many times in scripture. And there's the different translations. We'll call them the humble or other things. One of the most interesting ones I saw was the lost and forgotten one. Man, and the Anawim includes everyone who really doesn't have clout, include obviously the poor, widows and orphans. There's a subset; they have their own problems. 
It includes the weak infirmed. It includes the alien, as it's described in Scripture, or the stranger. All these people who don't have really any clout to look out for themselves. Um, and God says, I'm their God. Man. I am theirs. Now, the rest of you insider people, you need to try to convince me that you want to be part of us. And that's why there's all these warnings to the rich. Jesus said, you know, it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have to act like you're poor. You're going to have to sort of fool me. You know how the Gibeonites did the did Joshua and them. They put on those shabby clothes and shoes that were worn out to convince Joshua to make a covenant with them, not to kill them there in Canaan. And then God says, well, you're going to have to honor your covenant. And of course, later, so broke it and massacred them. And God avenged the Gibeonites uh, on Israel. Uh, but that's the mindset. You know, if, if you've had a lot of material blessings in this world, you better act like them. But when you look at the parable of the, um, when you look at the parable, which you talked about the rich man and Lazarus, you see a lot of modern day Christian political mindset in the rich man, because he believed that he believed in trickle down economics, like Reagan used to talk about that the crumbs would trickle down off the table to the, you know, the, the poor Lazarus, you know, and he also, he definitely believed that there should be any kind of health care, mm. you know, for a guy like a Lazarus who's begging under his table. And, you know, as long as he stayed out of his eyesight under the table, he didn't worry about it. And that's where he won out of his eyesight so he didn't see. And so he let the crumbs trickle down, uh, if that. But he kept power and control, just like Christians today. They want to say, well, we want to keep control of the giving to the poor. So what they do is on Christmas Eve, you know, particularly the, you know, like your, your televangelists, they'll drive their limo downtown and they'll go write a big check, make sure the cameras are there to see it when they hand the check over. Despicable. And then they, we'll see you next Christmas Eve. You know, no, no idea whether it's enough or whether it's adequate or, you know, what's going on. Uh, but, the interesting thing, this is a warning to people who are like me and raised in a, I hate to use the term conservative and liberal because it's really just about, do you have a kingdom of heaven mindset or not? You know, that's a whole different set of game and rules. Don't, don't I get pulled in the political thing. But what happens, what Jesus shows is in the eternal kingdom, the one that really matters as opposed to this temporal kingdom what happens is, is that the libertarian, independent, pulling himself up by the bootstraps rich guy is suddenly being a beggar and asking for handouts in the world to come. Man. He's asking, well, just give me a little bit of water. Could you give me a little taste of He's asking for a handout. <sighs> and what's Abraham say on behalf of God? Well, you know. You, you didn't want, you didn't want that welfare safety net for that guy under your table. But now it sort of stinks a little bit. Now you find out that that person was highly esteemed of God and they're getting a reward they were denied in heaven. Man. And when I'll 
tell somebody very pragmatically today, if you're cagey and smart and you know, God acknowledges the shrewd servant. Okay. You know, the shrewd servant that takes the assets of his master, which is all we have. And you go and you try to make friends out in the world. So you've got a place to go. He says, well, at least that's a wise use of the material. What you would be wise to do, us as Christians, if we believe what Jesus says about who's going to run the next kingdom, and we need to go find the people who are the most hard up, okay? Um, you know, I've always, you know, I've known growing up people who had cerebral palsy, for example, who basically just cannot control their movements, their mind is all there, they can't communicate, and they're trapped in a body that won't cooperate. And it alienates them from their society. They can't earn a living. And I just thought, what a nightmare world they're growing up. As I understand Jesus, people like that are going to be the guys running the show in the eternal kingdom. So wouldn't it be just pragmatically wise and wise investment to me if I would endear myself to people like that? Mm -hmm. If I endeared myself to people like that that were didn't have anything that they could give back to me, then maybe they'll remember me in the kingdom to come. You know, I, yeah. Me a little. Yeah. I, I, I think if I can jump in, I probably where like a lot of people get hung up is <clears throat> it, it's, it is at the polls and, and I'm not going to, you know, I, I'll say what you say all the time. I don't have all the answers. I have wrestled for the past, six years on whether to vote, how to vote, who to vote for and why. And I've, I've reamed through the scriptures and I've, I've come out sometimes with more conflict than what I had going into it. But I, I, I think at a point in, in what you're saying where people get hung up is they, the, the, when they believe or act as if the beginning and end of their influence is at the polls that your responsibility is to vote in the next human champion. That's going to, to legislate the Edenic kingdom rather than as Jesus said, be the hands and feet of that kingdom that has already been inaugurated by him right now till he comes. Are you going mm -hmm. to be able to secure the best candidate for office on the right, left or middle side of the spectrum? Absolutely not. But what you can do is that guy down the street that you see every week that's walking around homeless? Even if he spends his money on dope, you can buy him a cheeseburger. You can pray for him. Yeah, They're $1.50 at McDonald's. You can do that. You can do something to touch the disenfranchised next door. And it's not difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what the church was designed for. When you look in, in, in Acts and you look in the New Testament at like, where do deacons come from? Stephen, right? You know, yeah. picked as the first deacon. Like, it was because the 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 widows and the orphans they needed ministered to, and the apostles were like, "Well, we don't have time to do all of this, so let's design an organization. Let's design a church with people who who are overseers who will minister to these poor people on our behalf." Yes. And what an evolution we've come, you know, from being designed to do that to now we think that our our responsibility begins and ends with the exhortation of other believers. And it certainly does. I mean, we should exhort other believers and we should, you know, encourage them. But when the church was designed, it was, it was to be a practical outreach from 
Jesus to the people yeah. who are on the outside and, and to welcome them in. Like you, you talked about the parable with the, the wedding feast. It's go and get those people yes. and bring them to my table. Man, I, and even think about the apostle to the Gentiles. When I, and I, I can't remember if it's one of the Corinthian letters or Galatians where Paul recounts this, but and it, whenever they're about to be sent out, you know, and sort of the Jerusalem church inspects their work, you know, what, you know, what does he even recount them as being one of the first things that they want to check? It's like, hey, are you caring for the widow and the orphan? And Paul said, this is the very thing that we were eager to do. We didn't begrudgingly do this. We didn't try to find it in a heart maybe every once in a while to do this. We were eager to do this already. We've talked a lot about the the poor, but one thing that I love, Dr. Bennett, that you talk about, it, and it really reformed the way I thought about it, is is the stranger. Yeah. The immigrant who's the among you, the pilgrim. And how easily we look at and we and we divide into sides and we look at that person and well you don't really belong here, you know right, <laughs> like as do as if we do in the kingdom of heaven. Oh. You know they're serving like we are. Yeah. I rem- I remember reading this book series and um, Doctor Ben. I don't know if you've if you've ever heard of it, but C.S. Lewis actually wrote a, like a little space trilogy. Right. And, right. Yeah, and in the in the first book the. Um, out of the silent planet, I think is what it's called. Um, you know, he, th- these characters end up going to Mars and one of them's a good guy. The other two guys are wicked. They're horrible. And there's humanoids on Mars that are for lack of a better word. Of course, it's a novel, you know, it's fiction, but they're, they're humanoids. Um, they're, they're image bearers, uh, just like us. And he's, he's talking with them and, and, and it's like that it's, it's a planet that's ruled justly by a, a just archon and you know when he's talking to one of these figures he's you know he says well you know don't you want to have you know don't you fight these other species that are here that are coming to take the fish out of your waters and you know uh-huh. all of this stuff and and the response from one of the humanoids is why has the maker not made enough for all of us and yeah. they, they share richly out of the trees, we go cut down their trees to build our homes. Why? Why should they not be able to come eat our fish? Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it just brought to mind, like you know, you go to every poor place around the world. I don't know about you, Doctor Bennett, but pretty much all dirt can grow a tomato plant. Yeah. I've never seen dirt that can't. And I'm not saying yeah. that there's not ground that's not been poisoned or whatever. But the point is, the majority of the problem is, like you said. It's corrupt management, not mismanagement. It's intentional. It's corrupt yeah. management at the top. And like Jesus it's, said, you know, you're right. giving these guys like the choice seat at your table, but who's going to be the ones that turn you over to the judges in chains? Yeah, you're right. Trying to impress them and they don't even like you. You know, it's it's crazy. Uh, there's a quote from your book um, <clears throat> that reminds me of this conversation. It says, the Hannity and Fox News gospel sec- sacredizes the United States as being of special and unique status of God's favor, rivaled only by Israel, and with a divine mission as a specific tool of God's overall plan of mankind's redemption. Mm. While all of Scripture actually suggests neither, but it is accepted without question by most sola scriptura or Bible Bible believing Christians. You went hard on them boys right there. <laughs> oh gosh. 
You know, word if you if you wanted to really coin a word to describe that mindset, which I bought into for many, many, many decades, bought in support of, is a marrowolatry. I was just just thinking about it. It really is a form of idolatry. Mm. You you put in a substitute for Jesus, man. And if you if you ever like go through my my writing, I, I have a couple adages that I came up with that I stick with. And one of them is that which we do not critique, yes. we worship. So good. Yeah. And that's a good definition in a practical sense of what worship is. Worship is when you put a, some person or something beyond the status of critiquing it anymore. It becomes <laughs> item of which you critique everything else. And it is amazing what we have been tempted and cajoled to add to Jesus plus that is not questioned. It's not to be. And in fact, it's taboo. If you bring up these kind of things. Now, what I believe is when I start seeing church folk acting that way, well, that's something I better focus on. If they're that way and it's not something like just the mere words of Jesus, then I better go scrub this out on where it's going from. If, if, if I could mention this just real quick, because it's important for people who think, well, just this dude is just giving a bunch of his two cents and his view, and I'm not convinced. Um, thinking like a Mormon analytical science uh, brain person, left brain, I guess, person. The bulk of my book, and looking for questions, and, and getting up to this section, I lay out 31 issues of what the Pharisees said that they believed in their religion and how it distinguished from Jesus. And it was all how wealthy people look at everybody else. Yeah. In the next, I compare the gospel of talk radio and cable news issue by issue with the words of Jesus and the prophets. I try to make it as clear cut as possible. Here's what I hear they're saying after decades of listening. Here's what scripture says. And there's like basically no overlap. Yeah. But my, it, all that was sort of preamble to lead me to the question to say, how did we get in this mess? Man. How did we get like this? And that's what leads to me part that if people would commit just a few minutes of time to read the smoking gun evidence from source material that I find, um, what you'll find out was there was a concerted effort within America around 1940 to totally reinvent the basic values of Christians. And we've all been raised in this, and we don't know any difference until you step out of our culture as it is and go back and look objectively at what happened. You know, throughout, well, there's a lot of people that say, I wish we could just get back to more of a libertarian society, no government, because government's the devil, no taxes, no other kind of regulations, and it would be heaven if we had that. Well, to be really honest, for the most part, America was that for most of its history. You know, and that's why slavery lasted so long, because there was a big economic benefit to slavery, and we were the last industrialized nation to get rid of slavery, which, which I guess in a way makes us exceptional but certainly not exceptional in a good way. 
And so we under that. And then when the industrial age happened and they could build factories and steam powered stuff, you saw the decline of what had been throughout all of human history, the agrarian dominance of life on the farm. And people started migrating into these cities that were building up. Well, in the city, what they found was working seven days a week, 12, 16 hours a day, living in tenements that were just teeming with disease, no health care, and it was hell on earth in our city. You know, smokestacks that looked, I mean, it was a gilded age for the handful of people who were the robber barons. You know, it got so bad there in Providence where they all lived on millionaire role. They're facing their parties. They, they were idle rich. They didn't know what to do with themselves. And so they would have these sandboxes that were filled with rubies and emeralds that they would just sit in there and play around in. While the bulk of the whole country was working themselves where I think the average lifespan in America at the dawn of the 20th century was somewhere like 30 to 35 years old where you, where you die, you know, mostly preventable stuff. Yeah. So you saw a movement, a what's now been coined in hindsight, the social gospel movement that was totally appalled by that. Just like Christians and abolitionists had been appalled by us having in slavery, but yet lecturing the whole world, how we were the city shining on the hill and God's divine destiny while we're practicing slavery. Well, they saw the same thing there. And so they began going out and hurting themselves in the gutters and the ghettos and, the thick, and trying to get health care. You also had muckraker journalists writing books like The Jungle about, you know, how nasty, like even our food process. Yeah. You know, meat stuff. And so there gets to be a conscious developed. I guess they would call it woke today, but there started being a conscious about your fellow neighbor. And it's probably a, a minorly fair criticism that some of the social gospel got so enamored with the immediate needs of their neighbor that they didn't give as much time talk, talking about the afterlife. But in, in reality, there is no conflict. When you look at Jesus' ministry, and he's ministering in the Gospels, there's like three legs of his ministry. One is doctrine, theology. He's teaching about the kingdom of heaven, which was essential to document. The second was he was doing spiritual warfare. There were real spirits that he was having to cast people out of and deal with. The third one was meeting the physical needs of the people. Mm. Jesus was a pushover, okay? Jesus would go in with another agenda to do, but it always says he looked on him and he had compassion on him. Ouch. So, so then he, you know, I guess I, we do need to, somebody needs to feed him. The, the, the disciples weren't saying, you know, so he's like, we better feed him. And the, the disciples were like, well, then they need to go home, send them home. And he says, no, you feed them. All three were essential for people to be able to buy on and become part of the kingdom of heaven at that time. So, in the meantime, while that's going on in America, in following up through the 30s, the hubris of our business class and the greed 
led them to do all the speculation and to get get money for free and get rich quick schemes of the stock market, which led to the inevitable Great Depression, which led to you know what a quarter to a third of Americans out of work, and it was worldwide in the West at least, and so you've got this horrible, horrible state where people were on the cusp. And, and what we saw, like, for example, in Germany, it was very much sort of a laissez-faire libertarian thing. And so when they went through that in the 20s and 30s, by not addressing the basic needs of the people, what happened? Extremist political parties emerged. Mm-hmm. On one end, you had the communists. On the other, you had the Nazis. You had fighting in the streets. And the people said, well, hey, we'll go with one of the extremes if they will bring some stability to our society. Mm. That could have just as easily happened in America at that time. So we have the great depression going on. People despise business grabbing, led them into it. Meanwhile, you've got an organization, the national association of manufacturers, whose whole job is to take the windfall of money and take a little bit of it and saturate the new mass media to try to make people love business, love business, business is the saviors of America. And nobody was buying it. Nobody mm-hmm. was buying because they could see with their own, on their own watch what happened. Right. And so they were desperate. And so 1940, they were having, they, they would broadcast these on the radio, these conventions. So they're having to think, well, somebody invited the first prosperity gospel preacher, this guy, Reverend James Fifield. He was called the Apostle of the Millionaires. This was like a new thing. He went out to Los Angeles, First Congregational Church, all like Cecil B. DeMille, all these famous people, big industrialists went to his church. And he gives this sermon that forever changed American Christianity on the radio. He said to the audience there at the conference, he said, what you need to do, if you're ever going to get the majority of the people behind you, because people aren't going to be sympathetic to a bunch of super rich businessmen wanting to stop the new deal and things like social security and jobs for people who are out of work. They're not going to be sympathetic for that. What you need to do is you need to co-opt the clergy and the religious community and wrap your values, your business values in a pseudo Christian language Mm. and put a lot of money in mass media into selling it. And the light bulbs went on in their head and they said, bingo. Here's a way that a minority elite with minority, you know, interest can co-op the masses to do their business. And they formed a group called Spiritual Mobilization, which is like one of the very first parent church organizations that was all about using mass media to disseminate another gospel. And, you know, all the different industries were involved, uh, Westinghouse and all these other ones. But, yeah, the oil people had a big footprint. The biggest one of all was the founder of Sunoco. And that was J. Howard Pugh and his, particularly his son, Junior, were the main ones bankrolling this. And what they start, here's what they started saying. Government, by definition, is evil. Why? Because government taxes and government puts regulations on business. Now, those are the very things in Scripture God said government is supposed to do. (laughs) Jesus 
Jesus himself said, you rendered to Caesar what Caesar's. So they were, see that they were trying to trick him, uh, Jesus, the Pharisees, by saying, won't you speak out against Rome and we shouldn't have to be paying this? Because, I mean, hey, this was even a foreign power. It wasn't even their own government, foreign power. He says, you pay them what they're due. Paul later said, yeah, you go on to do that because this government's being used by God. And you think about Rome for all of their negatives. Rome developed a peace throughout the world. Of course, it was enforced brutally, but it was a peace. <laughs> they a Roman road system. They provided safety on the roads. And you know, several times they even saved Paul's neck when the Jews were going to string him up. They came to his rescue, even if it was to arrest him and save his life. So the timing was perfect in God's economy when he sent Christ and then sent out the apostles on the Great Commission because the government in place had provided everything for the dissemination of the gospel Mm. and wisdom. But the things that we see in the Old Testament and the New that they're supposed to do is to stop the dishonest weights and measures of the, uh, you know, the exploitation and advantages exploited by the well-to-do and merchant class in the marketplace, trying to make sure that the poor got justice in the courts. I, this is all scripture. You can go in and I made it easy on people by reading the specific scriptures you can go read in, in the book. But spiritual mobilization caught on because pretty soon they had four or 500 TV stations and radio stations broadcasting this message that businessmen were God's saviors for mankind. Government was a tool of the devil, particularly like their regulation, like safety regulations, you know, uh, environmental protection. That was all the the devil. But it was all about stopping the New Deal. This is what they, they wrote and what they were trying to do this for, is to stop the New Deal from setting up Social Security, uh, veterans, pensions, um, any kind of safety workers, jobs programs to take out-of-work people who are otherwise going to get rowdy like they were in Germany and start some extremist political movements. Man. To make sure we're doing real work, going out there, busting their buns, building roads, you know, going through forests, making our national parks, making honest, good work. They were opposed to all of this because it would cut a little bit of their windfall of profit off. And so a little bit of that windfall is lots and lots of money when it comes in going into mass media and having hundreds of radio stations, hundreds of TV shows. Uh, They started doing these things about pushing this one nation under God thing. All of this stuff that like on our coins, on our, on our Pledge of Allegiance, which originally was there, all this under God kind of thing was all added in a, about a two-year period. And the people who came up with it, and you can see the, the core evidence in my book, so it was all done in a boardroom where they brought the ex-propaganda people that were used in World War II to basically do black propaganda. Like, you know, Eisenhower oversaw some of this, where they were pretending to be uh, rescued German officers that were broadcasting and saying that, you know, the war was collapsing on the German front. 
when actually they were American officers pretending to be them and stuff. They developed all these skills on how to push buttons with people. So they took that in, the OSS, all of these groups, they had some relig- our tough religious leaders in the main room with our military intelligence people and came up with things like this one nation under God thing because what they said was, this is from Truman and others, they were afraid people were going to like communism better. Man. Now, crazy guys. But they really were worried because the perception was with communists, at least everybody had a job. There weren't the extreme poor. And, you know, of course, we're not talking about the other terrible, dirty laundry. I mean, the atheism, which which wouldn't even have to be a part of communism, was obviously the poison pill, you know, for, for their thing. But what they were worried that Americans were going to, like, get into it post-war. And so what they said was they want to make this Cold War into a holy war. So they worked with groups like Spiritual Mobilization. They got guys like Charlton Heston and all these other famous people where you had to go sign basically an allegiance to America in your churches. You had to go up to the altar that was dedicated to Jesus Christ and to go sign your allegiance to this earthly nation. What the heck, dude? That's so whack. Well, nobody was thinking to it. Like, what are we? Now, there were some religious leaders then, but they didn't have the main bully pulpit microphone to get to the public and say, think about what you're doing. No you know, America, like, we're, we're grateful for it. Let's thank God for it. But we're not going to worship it. No. You know, take these pledges and like the sugar bowl. They filled the sugar bowl. Everybody had to raise their hand. You know, and they used to do the Pledge of Allegiance, like with your straight arm out, like the, you know, Hitler salute. And they would do that and have to make these pledges to it. It got to be so bad that, uh, you see, and this was pretty from Truman on to Eisenhower, they started a program of forced religious conversion of military members because they were going to do a universal draft that was permanent. Everybody would have to do compulsory military service. And they wanted to do is you had to run through this thing. This was run by the government, okay? This is government-run religion where you had to come in and you had to make a personal decision for Jesus Christ in front of all your officers and other people looking over you. It was essential before you left that room, you had to do that. Man. Now you could, how sincere those conversions were. Then you had to go be at church. You had religious instruction on, um, the Bible and then how America was God's purpose of how the kingdom of heaven would be through America and what America did. And you had like four or five hours a day of that every day. They had people that were snitches. If they snuck off to a bar, the, the locals would actually write, send stuff to people that they did. So anyway, they did this for years to get this in their head drilled in the military that America equals God's army um, you know, all these things like the, the the Ten Commandments, for example, they were saying we still had to obey the Ten Commandments, which, excuse me, but I think that's part of the Mosaic Law, and I think that's part of what Jesus nailed on the cross in Corinthians chapter and Colossians chapter 2, canceled the written code contained in ordinances, and thereby threw down the principalities and powers. You know, you know. So this went on. And they thought this was going to make the uh, 
make us a godly nation that we're ready to be cold warriors. And the writing, there was a psychological operations board in America that said that making America Christian would have good psychological benefits for the, winning the Cold War. Hmm. So what happened was they put all these years of intensive training, and as soon as they stopped, these, office, these uh, military men went back to their old ways. Hmm. Didn't, didn't accomplish a thing spiritually. But what they did do is they kept a lot of that training, particularly about the Ten Commandments and being America's divine They kept it in the officer corps. And that's why guys like General Jerry Boykin, head of the Family Research Council or Second Command, these guys all had this stuff impregnated in their head by secular people for a secular agenda. Mm-hmm. Now, none of these psychological research board and all these other government things that said, we need religion to win the Cold War. None of them said anything about, well, hopefully these people will find eternal life and that they will dwell with God eternally in the heavens based upon this activity. That wow. was never what they were doing. The factor was it's going to make soldiers that are going to be more like Mujahideen, you know, uh, religious warriors that would run into a hail of bullets because we have groomed them to think of these things. The afterlife was not their concern. And so spiritual mobilization they were dealing more on the more secular, mostly end. Um, basically, took over the thinking and polls that were done of clergy, people seminaries, and then the people sitting in the pew. They took polls a few years later after spiritual mobilization was saturating all of our media, and showed a radical change in view of America's religious people about starting to hate government, starting to recognize that assistance for people who were less fortunate was was ungodly, that businessmen were how God used to, you know, that uh, immigrants in, inherently were the devil, even though all of them came from immigrants themselves. <laughs> and so they built upon this year after year. New organizations came out that took this and modernized. Sadly, in my book, I show from about the late 50s through the 70s, it started going hardcore neo-Nazi. The top, the guys who basically trained the Jerry Falwells and these people were openly involved in neo-Nazi activity with groups like the Silver Shirts. Now, um, you know, I mentioned uh, J. Howard Pugh Jr., who was founded in Sunoco with his dad. He was the one that bankrolled Christianity Today for you know, when Billy Graham founded it, his requirement that he insisted on was that, was that it had to fight unions. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. A little electrical impact here. They had to fight unions. They had to fight, um, any kind of government regulations. That was a requirement for his money to kick off for sure today. And Billy Graham agreed to that. And so he started preaching these sermons about, how wonderful the Garden of Eden was because there weren't any unions in the Garden of Eden. Man, I just, sorry, just to, I'm sorry, just to jump in real quick. I, you know, I, I know at least on, on today's episode, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I'd love, um, man, if you would come back for like a part two and give like more of the nuts and bolts of that history, because, 
a lot of this is just such new information, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you would never associate so many of these names together. And uh, uh, sorry, Creek, you No, you're good. We we're actually about like halfway through the book's content right now. And we're actually out of time, but we would actually really love to have you come back for a part two because there's so much more in the book that, you know, we, I definitely want to hit like with the Falwell stuff and the Billy Graham stuff for sure. Yes. Yes. And then the, you know, obviously how we apply all of this now and how this, how we can change this now, but. Yeah. I think in like in summation though, for our audience in this episode today, it's, it's so, honestly, it's kind of disheartening when you start getting all this information and, and you're just like, how how have we been blinded? You know, how how can we not have seen any of this happening? You know, and a lot of it wasn't on our watch. It was on our fathers and grandfathers and, and, yeah. their, and their fathers before them. But, you know, how can we read Scripture every day and be blind to the heart of it? Man. And, and I think that what's going to happen is, there's going to be some listeners get angry. Like they're going to have that grief cycle that you talked about. But yeah, I pray that that through the episode and, and if you're gracious enough to come back on uh, uh, with us, I would, I would just pray that what would stick in the crawl of all of them is does our heart reflect the ministry that Jesus did? Yes. Does, does our ideals reflect the ministry that he, that he did? Are we more concerned? And and you know, you you talk about the you know the, the government and the businesses. Which now it kind of feels like they're both two giant machines running over the poor. And the, you know, it just. But I I do I hope that the, it'll stick in their head that whenever they they think about these things, they'll think, what is the heart of Jesus? Man, where, where was his ministry centered? Who are the people that God cares about? And how does how do our our opinions? Or quote unquote locker room talk, or or you know good old boy conversations. How does that reflect his heart towards people? I mean, a lot of it is honestly, and I I tend to ramble, but a, a lot of it is is we don't ever put faces to the people that we talk about. Yeah, right. We don't ever have to look those people in the face, and when you do, you can't unsee that. You know when like. Today, a huge issue, and I, I would consider myself conservative for the most part, but like a huge issue amongst my brothers is, is immigration. And this is really the one that that you open my eyes to, but it's like, do you put a face to that word? Man. Do you see people? And, the, and something that you said in a, in a previous interview, and it, it just, I wept, it broke my heart, but it's like, we live in, in a world where the Great Commission should be chief. And we have millions upon millions upon millions of people that would do anything to live next to us to be our neighbors. But we would build a wall and shut them out from the gospel, shut them out from our presence, shut them out. And it reminds me of what Jesus says, would you light a lamp and then put it under a, a cup or mm. under a bowl? Mm. Would you? No. You're supposed, if you're going to claim to be the shining city on a hill, then be that. Be that thing. Be you know. Be the the light that the nations can come to. Man, First John says, um, you know, if 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 you have the the things of this world that you know the needs like bread and such, and you see someone in need and shut up your bowels of compassion from them, 
how can the love of God be in you? And it, mm-hmm. and, it, and it just gives you, you know, for the audience to dovetail on Trey's plane landing, you know, at least for this part and, you know, the second part, I'm, 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 uh, I'm speaking prophetically here for, for Dr. Future coming back, but, <laughs> um, no, I, for, for this first part, like, let that sink in, like Trey said, like what you believe about Jesus, but what your theology, the way that you believe about being a Christian, is that deriving more from a culture that actually doesn't come from the Bible, that's found nowhere in the Bible, that's completely contrary to the Bible? Well, I see a homeless person, but, you know, you just never know if they're really, well, odds are if they're willing to stand out in 35 degrees with a jacket on, they've probably got need. I think you'd be safe giving them a sandwich. And, you know, it's just this, this thought of, you know, are you looking at these with compassion? Do you even have bowels of compassion anymore? I think John's point is introspection, you know, look within and be guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, don't just go on some diatribe against yourself, but be guided by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Look at your value system and look at people and ask yourself, first, do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, or strength, or is there a second master? And then ask yourself, do I love my neighbor as myself, even the Samaritan neighbor, yeah. even the Muslim neighbor? Especially. Even, you know, do you do you love them as you love yourself? One of the, and I, you know, we landing this plane, I just wanted to point out, one of the quotes you quoted this song in a, in your book, but in reference to the immigration section, but it's, it's you know you quoted it, it says Jesus loves the little children red yellow black and white they're mm. precious in his sight it actually gave me tears like you know to think of how we've come so far to a place where we actually seem to really despise those people that we sing about in Sunday school God you know help us. That, just you know. But, Doctor let, let me, Bennett, let me ask you something. If you were not raised in a Christian environment, if you were just totally blank slate and it's foreign to you, and you looked at what the public position, posture is of the most vocal Christian spokesmen are, or what you see on Facebook, would you be enticed to want to become a Christian? No. Man. Not, not for the most part, no. I mean, is there anything that's really appealing or noble or something that, wow, they, they set a higher bar of nobility and selflessness that I certainly find appealing, mm-hmm. and I'd like to be a part of that. Definitely not on social media. They got a, they got a really sweet deal on a private jet, though. Well, they do. Check it to wealth, at least for the guys who get in at the top of the pyramid. Uh, if, if I can, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I apologize for that. Sorry, I have a hard time shutting up. No uh, regarding the immigration thing, if I could just summarize a few points to think about. From the very beginning, when God first called out his people, he told them, must have been a thousand times, you take care of the stranger and the alien in your midst and you treat them just like one of yourself. Why? Because you were once aliens in Egypt. And kept telling them over again, you were the alien in Egypt. You know what it feels to be a second-class person 
You also know to experience the grace that I gave you that when I called you out, you weren't worth anything, and I gave mm. you grace. When the, the temple was commissioned, which was the physical identity of Judaism on this earth, uh, when it was commissioned the night before, God talked to Solomon and said, you know what this building is for? He didn't ask for it. But he said, this building is so that the stranger can come in, yes. come pray to me, and I will hear his prayers. Now, this is a building that was the identity of their separateness. Mm. This was their distinctness of the temple that made them separate from the riffraff of the others. And God says, the only real use I see in it is to let those people come in and talk to me. God. With guys as middlemen. They're going to come talk to me because I want to have a relationship and I want to answer their prayers. Man. And, you know, when you talk about giving a sandwich to the guy on the street, that's a wonderful beginning, but it's just a beginning because mm-hmm. the guy's going to sandwich the next day. You know, it might be like, like I pointed out in my book, a lot of these people, let's say a husband that was beating his wife, okay, and kid, and she's got to go run to the shelter and she, she was a stay at home mom. Well, now she's got to figure out how to take care of that family. And the statistics show that most of the public assistance they get is like maybe for like two, three years. And a lot of the restrictions were put in place by, surprisingly, Bill Clinton. Uh, on the restrictions of how long you get kind of benefits. It's so that the woman can go get a nursing degree, get back in the workforce, and take care of her kids and be independent. That's the typical thing. But you're always going to have some sliver, and I don't mean it's a tiny sliver, but you're going to be some people who are wasted on drugs, and they're pitiful. Mm. And they're not going to. Or I think it could be just alcohol, which is the acceptable drug in our society. Okay. They're going to be wasted on that. That's where you show you're not a Darwinist. Yeah. Christian liberty is just Darwinism. It's the survival of the fittest and the stragglers of the herd gets kept off. That's where you look out for the 90 and nine and you forget the one. Wow, That's man. why there's views in this world. There's Darwinism, which is libertarianism. Is what are a lot of our conservative cultures, and then there's Jesusism, which says I'm going to leave the ninety and nine and go spend all of my energy to go find that one, and I'm going to go rescue that one. So those are the two real worldviews, regardless of political parties coming to go or whatever. That's, That's where you have to decide where you're going to be. But beyond giving somebody a sandwich, when God had an opportunity to set up His own government and kingdom like like was in the Old Testament in Israel. Several of the things he established was the Jubilee year all are written off. Come on. The reset. All captives are set free and they would celebrate it. They would sell all of the land went back to the original owners 50 years prior. Come on. What happened was when you bought property, and let's say it was 10 years away from the Jubilee, you bought a prorated amount so people didn't get screwed over. You bought a prorated amount, but you knew it, was going, it wasn't going to go in the hands of a Cargill or, or these mega companies. All going back to the original family, and then they celebrated it. That was like, this is what makes our place wonderful. The other thing that they was every seventh year was a 
Sabbath year to let the land rest. To show you weren't a greedy so-and-so. When God, God says, I will give you an extra uh, amount on That's year six, six yeah. through year seven, and also through year eight while you planted, kick back, relax, enjoy your family. Let the land just grow fallow. But during that seventh year, anybody who wants to wander on your land can help themselves. Mm, man. You know, poor can, can help themselves and get, and, um, not only the gleanings that were left on the edge of the field, but on that seventh year, the land rested, people come in They were, they weren't checking your IDs, or your tax forms or whatever, your immigration status. Everybody just helped themselves. These were the things that refused to do. They did not do these things because they were greedy. I was going to say, Dr. Bennett, do you recall, uh, what was the correlation between the amount of time in exile that they spent and the breaking of what commandments? <laughs> specifically, the prophet said specifically, you're going to spend one year in exile for every year you didn't honor this. I mean, basically, it was a 14% tax just for the poor. Yeah. Just for the poor. And they ignored it. So he said, every year you didn't do that. He says, basically, God is a tree hugger, okay? He's a tree hugger, and he says, I'm going to let the land rest every year. You didn't let it rest. So you missed 70 of the Sabbath years. So you're going to be in, in exile. The prophet says it literally. For every year, you were greedy, and you didn't let the land rest. Man. The other thing he said was, God will, if, God, if God's people will not do his will, God will go find somebody else to do his will. And this is a warning to our self-congratulatory pat themselves on the back evangelical religious right culture here in America who's supposed to be lead by destiny. When when they didn't take care of the poor, when you go back and read in the New Testament, Nebuchadnezzar came. First of all, they had to go get Jeremiah and dig him out of the latrine that the religious leaders threw Jeremiah in because they didn't like these words from him. About then that? it's the <laughs> land to all the poor. All the poor got the land anyway. That's right. So the wealthy people, they got carted off. Well, they were lucky not to go to Assyria. I mean, you really took the stuff right in Assyria. They got to go to Babylon, whereas the poor people, they like, here's the land. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to make sure his will was done because, mm -hmm. quote, God's people didn't do it. And it's no different today in America. Come on. If God's people aren't going to do these things that are the fundamental values of God, God will find somebody. He might find a woke person, or he might find somebody else that somehow you're offended by, and he's going to do his will through them if you refuse to do it. But this thing about walls, you know, walls were the big thing from like 2016 on. I challenge the listeners here, and I'm not, I'm not going after them, okay? I'm not trying to make them feel bad. We've all been hoodwinked by yeah. strangers yeah. who have been our national religious leadership on TV and most of our pulpits. These people are strangers and they're hirelings. That's right. Okay. They're That's hirelings. Right. That's what calls them. We, we got to grow up and do our own business and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The walls that you see in scripture that everybody wants, Oh, we want walls like Jerusalem has. Every time those walls, in scripture ended up being the demise of the people who built them. Man. 
walls don't walls don't help you. Walls don't keep the bad guys out. Walls keep you trapped within, and that's what happened to the people of Israel in AD seventy when it all came down. And you know they picked Barabbas. These are the people that they like. Okay, Barabbas, the violent, says he was a murderer and a thief. They chose him over Jesus Christ, Jesus Barabbas. They chose, Man. and at the end of the book, I mentioned you know they were everybody was grieving over Jesus. He's carrying the cross up to Golgotha, and he turns to them and he said, "Don't you grieve for me? You grieve for your children, because in that generation, the, the zealots like you know like Barabbas, it basically it terrorized their own Jewish people." had brought up a fight, a needless fight with Rome that was unwinnable. And then they trapped all the Jewish people behind their own walls that they were used to protect themselves. And if they tried to go out and surrender, they would kill them. Kind of sounds like something that's going on today. And uh, ultimately, they were destroyed by the very wall that they put all of their trust and hope into. You know, Nehemiah built all these walls. And I've heard how many sermons about how great that is course, most of the time they, they preach those sermons when preachers have building programs they want to do. <laughs> they said, Nehemiah, it's like, well, look, here's the man of God who wants to build something. You better not stand against him. You know, it's just pure manipulation of the people. That's right. But Crazy. those same walls were the walls that when they would not live righteously and did not take care of the poor and the stranger, God sent the enemy straight through their walls. It was like nothing. Man. The walls didn't help one bit. But you look in the, the future kingdom of heaven in the, the great city Jerusalem, yeah, it's got beautiful walls around it, which provides structural support and all the jewels. But you know what? It has gates in it that have no doors. All of the gates in the kingdom of heaven have no doors in them. Man, I think that's, you know, circling back to what you said, you know, in closing it. Judgment begins in God's house first. Like, you know, God's concerned with the way, first and foremost, like Paul said, I, what do I have to do with judging the world? God judges the world. I judge what's right. inside of the church. That's what God first, told me to judge. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's what this, this episode is. And pray, Lord willing and Terry, what the next one will be is a moment of introspection for God's people you know, line yourself up against Scripture. Like Jesus said, you can, you got two choices. You fall on this rock, you'll be broken. But if yeah. it falls on you, it's going to grind you into powder. You know, yeah. don't resist. You know, he said, don't stiffen your necks. Don't yeah. harden your That's hearts right. like your ancestors did. That's right. Listen. God, he says, come now, let us reason together. Listen to me. And we just pray that. These words will sink into our audience. So important to let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be likewise also in you. It's not just something you do, but it's about in being born again, making it a part of who you are now. This is who you are. Those value systems need to be a part of who you are. And if they're not, we pray that you take this time and that you go to God in prayer you didn't have a good heart before you got saved. That's why you asked God for one. And, right. and and it's no different for the rest of your walk in sanctification. You'll never be able to give yourself that. 
but I've never heard a person cry out to God and hunger and thirst after righteousness and not be satisfied. Yeah. I think the problem is that we don't hunger and thirst for it. Oh man, that's that we're like the city, right? That says that we're we're well dressed and we're we're healthy, we're good, we have need of nothing. And he said you're not. You're blind. You fool. You're naked. <laughs> yeah. Ask of me and I'll give you. You didn't you know? know that your life will be required of you this night, you know, and uh, just please, you know, audience, take these take these words and yeah. take the scripture, meditate on this, the Bible says. Think deeply on these things. You know, take it into consideration. And Dr. Bennett, we so appreciate you for your time and for your work. I, I The three of us have been in a similar journey in the past three years of our life. Just God has been yeah. shaking everything that can be shaken. And there's, let me tell you, there's a lot that could be shaken at least in John's world for sure. And it's flipping it's got, upside down, you know. It's good, though. That's that, that which cannot be shaken. It yeah. has to be shaken so that you find out what remains, and that's what cannot be shaken. And that includes of your faith and your commitment to Christ, too. Amen. Amen. Can I say, uh, from just from all of us, uh, thank you. I mean, maybe you don't hear this enough, but uh, thank you for being an instrument of God to, to check things in my own heart and in my own walk. Yeah. Thank you for be, being obedient. Thank you for not bowing out either. There's so many. I know for me, if I'm being honest, there's a lot of the times that I feel that God calls me to a lot of us to uncomfortable Jeremiah-like roads, you know, and, and we don't want to go say those things to the people. We don't want to be thrown in the trains and rejected and blocked out, you know, ostracized and blacklisted, but Man, thank you, thank you for being uh, being bold in the Holy Spirit to do what God has told you to do, and to bring that reproof and rebuke to God's house, and first letting it come to you, and then letting it come through you. You know that it's a it's a beautiful thing. Amen. Yeah. Well, we're we're all in this together. I love every one of you. I love every one of your listeners. I'm assuming we all have the same agenda. We want to please our Savior. Mm. We want. We want to bear fruit. We want to raise treasures in heaven. And we want to advance the kingdom, bring more people in. Okay. I don't know so much about the strangers that I see that are real popular, that suddenly have wealthy people writing their checks behind them. I have a lot of suspicions about those folks. Yeah. So somebody be those people that Jesus said are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we use your name? And didn't we do all these great things in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you which is the scariest verse of the whole Bible, because these people were self-deluded in thinking they were doing God's will. And so that's the thing we don't want to be. We don't want to be that. So I don't want anybody to be bummed about when they're here to me or whatever. Although it does cause you to have to invest a little bit of time to go back and reassess some things. Mm. But what I want is liberate people, liberate yes. people in a good way. Let's because Jesus' yoke is light and his burden is easy. Mm. It's all the people who put all of our burdens Oof. to ring up hands about what Antifa or what Black Lives Matter, what all these people are going to do to us, and they're burning our cities, and it's all pedophiles in our schools. And I have never met a more paranoid, scared people than people who listen to our Christian leaders and our pulpits. They just walk around in terror and they want to build bunkers and disappear. 
that is not what Jesus called us to be. Man, come on. We are to not let the gates of hell do anything to shake against us. And so if I can help people to start asking hard overdue questions about the people we've let influence us, the people who are just saturating in the pulpit or in TV, these guys with these fine threads, you know, maybe if we're going to listen to anybody, we should listen to the ones in the book of Hebrews says that are sort of in the hall of faith. Those guys wear animal clothes and they live in caves. <laughs> hey, yeah. They don't have big jets that come around. They're not politically well-connected. They don't show pictures of major political figures. Okay. Mm. They're caves. And I, I know of a lot of people, you know, online or whatever that are in those metaphorical caves and wearing those suits and they're not getting wealthy or rich and they're not using worldly business techniques to manipulate the minds of people. Mm. And maybe we first listen to ourselves, yeah. listen to the Holy spirit and even our own conscience speak. And then find out people who don't have a vested financial interest in leading us by the nose in some direction. And if we all do that, we're going to be liberated and we're going to be more effective. We're even going to find out we have more in common. Man. You try. I, ch- I challenge the listener. You get around people who make you uncomfortable. You know, maybe, maybe it's their race or their sexual orientation or a different religion or whatever. You get around them and just as an experiment, tell them some extra grace. Tell them the kind of extra grace that Jesus used to give a Roman centurion or a tax collector or a prostitute. You, you, you don't start out telling them where they're wrong or everything else. You listen to them, listen to where they came from in life. Ask them what even that they think about God. But you listen to them, and what you're going to find out is we have been made enemies with a lot of people, even though we may have some of our differences and we have our convictions. We've been made enemies with people who had a vested interest in making us enemies with these people. Man. Well, speak- so I, I just challenge people to do that. And you know what you'll feel? You'll feel liberated. When you take this weight of this required hatred that some stranger told you you need to do somebody, and you go treat somebody like a human being, it kind of like, that, that you'll find out that is natural, and it feels good to do that and you don't have to give up your convictions you don't have to give up your personal beliefs right mm. but you interact you can share talk about what god has revealed to both of you show respect none of those are bad words <laughs> well speak <laughs> that's right speaking of uh liberating and reading why don't you just go ahead and take a second to tell all of the listeners uh dr bennett where can they find your book um where can they okay. get a hold of that well, this is where I'm making my massive uh, windfall, $4 at a time. And I only make that because I decided to publish it myself because I didn't want a publisher changing the words in it. There you go. And taking it off of publication. Because I'm still getting, you know, a trickle of orders three and a half years later, and I don't know how they find out about it. But if you go to the normal places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, there are paperbacks, hardcovers, there are even audiobooks. Mm. Uh, and I think Barnes and Noble has it in the, the other format, you know, EPUB, um, the regular Amazon one you can get there. Um, and you'll find it at weird places like, uh, 
Kroger or Walmart, these things will pop up. <laughs> uh, a lot of my time just giving them away to people. If somebody can't afford a few dollars for a book, you know, contact me and I'll, I'll make sure you get one. All I care about is people who care enough. First of all, to invest, to read a book. Yeah. I, it's a sliver of Christians today that even want to bother to read a book. I do have a radio show I do called the Two Spies Report. Uh, it's on WRFN. It's just all the stuff, volunteer stuff. But it, okay. Uh, but a lot of research, a lot of contemporary stuff in it. Um, that's on um, 5 o'clock on Thursday, Central Time. And if you go to RadioFreeNational.org and click at the little arrow at the top when the Two Spies Report says up there, you can hear it streaming. I am going to get those probably right in the first of the year uploaded as videos on YouTube. I've never done that before, but I'm going to do that and a podcast for it. But mostly I'm going to get back to writing. I got to get you know, volume two done. There is a, there is a blog that's probably more controversial and fighting than the book, uh, called the two spies report. And it's dot wordpress.com. Cause I really get into some, I haven't updated that since I've got this book out. But there's a lot of stuff in there that makes people uncomfortable. You know, I talked about, you know, when they were tearing statues down and that was a big thing and causing a big kerfuffle because people tearing down statues. Uh, I wrote an article on there that Christians need to be the first people who need to be tearing down statues. Wow. Yeah. And I, Why is that and I, so controversial? <laughs> yeah. I, said, uh, I recommended Jonathan Edwards is the first one we needed to tear down. The, uh, the good old Calvinist slaveholder. Uh-oh. Uh, we <laughs> Uh-oh. we can work our way. <laughs> oh. You know, they, they want to protect all these Confederate uh, leaders on there with their statues. And I quote an old Russian, or not Russian, but a Roman philosopher who said, uh, he says, rather than have children one day look at my statue and say, why does he have one? I would rather them not find one and ask, why doesn't he have one? Man. Hmm. And you think, I mean, you got to chew on that a little bit. Uh, but that basically our statues reflect what we value as a culture. It's really not about the person who's the statue. What it is is about the society that erects it and what do they value. And that person just represents what they value. And we get back to that thing, you know, that which we do not critique, we worship. Mm. And, uh, you know, something else I have to admit about myself, another one of my adages, is that an opinion does as much about the opiner as it does its subject. When you give an opinion, you're saying as much about where your head is at and where you came from is about the person you're talking about. And that's, I'm no exception on that. So we always have to keep in mind those opinions are flying left and right online and TV and is that everybody brings some perspective into their valuation of what they're talking about. And we'd be wise to try to peel the onion back and then get back when we're in the wild west of communications these days. And we, we've got fake news. We've got um, AI and, you know, all this other kind of stuff we can't believe. Your only protection, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight on communication. And so you better figure out what your most basic values are. 
Mm. Because that's the only way you're going to sort out what's real and a value versus what's not is if you understand what your basic values are, where they came from, how robust are they for different circumstances, how have they stood the test of time. And, and I hate to say this, but you can't go look to the guy in the pulpit or the guy on the TV or the top Christian author. You can't get that from them because mm. you don't know getting their stuff from. I say you, if, it's you, a, if it's a graven image, just go ahead and rip that puppy down. Just do it. Just rip her down. <laughs> you know what? I mean, we got a first film in our hearts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, um, I think that uh, we, we're, we are uh, over our time, but once again, um, Dr. Future, uh, don't hang up. We'll talk to you for just a minute after uh, we end this recording. Okay. But uh, thank you so much for your time. And um, to our listeners, uh, we're grateful for you um, that you would take time out of your day and listen to three Yahoo's, and we'll go ahead and add Dr. Ben in there, uh, a fourth a fourth Yahoo at the table today. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for, for giving us your time, and I pray that um, you will find this profitable and that you will open your heart to uh, allow God to do his work. Amen. Um, but from all of us here at, at the table, that is what's at the table. God bless you. Godspeed. Catch you later. This is Pastor Kevin O'Connor, and you're listening to At The Table Podcast. This is Dylan from Jamaica, and you're listening to At The Table Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Kent Hovind of Dinosaur Adventureland, and with the At The Table Podcast. Hey, this is Savannah Donaldson, and you're listening to At The Table Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of At The Table Podcast. We hope it blessed you, and we hope it taught you something. Until next time, thank you so much, and God bless.